0: A reading from Psalm 65. These are God's words. For the chief musician, a psalm, a song of David. Praise waiteth for thee in silence, O God in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, Thou wilt forgive them. Blessed is the man whom Thou choosest and causest to approach unto Thee, that he may dwell in Thy cause. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of Thy house, Thy holy temple. By terrible things Thou wilt answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. Thou that art the confidence of all the ends of the earth, and of them that are Afar off upon the sea, who by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being girded about with might, who stilleth the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. Thou visitest the earth. And waterest it, thou greatly enrichest it. The river of God is full of water. Thou providest them grain when thou hast so prepared the earth. Thou waterest its furrows abundantly. Thou settlest the ridges thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. They drop unto the pastures of the wilderness, and the hills are girded with joy. The pastures are clothed with flocks, the valleys are covered over with grain. They shout for joy, they also sing. These are God's words. Take your seats, please. This psalm teaches us that God is doing good in all the earth, At all times, which means that in every moment, there is a silence that waits to be filled with an appropriate response of praise. This moment, God is giving rain all over New Zealand, filling our lakes and rivers. Will there be a fitting response of praise, or will it remain silent? Another moment passes. God is still working, causing our food to grow. The attention of man is not on what God is doing, but we benefit from his invisible work once the grain is grown. Will there be a fitting response of praise to fill the praiseless silence? This is the idea in the first verse. Praise waiteth for thee in silence, O God, in Zion. So David is personifying praise as though it were waiting to be employed. God is always doing good. So in every moment of silence, praise is thinking, "Uh, you should be doing something right now. Silence could also be personified. It is waiting for praises, the praises of God to overtake it. Isn't this a great image? This is an example of how beautiful poetry can help us grasp reality. Consider also that this psalm was for the chief musician. So an arrangement of this psalm would have been also sung when Israel gathered together for worship. When we consider the natural silence that happens when people gather for worship, get it coming together, it takes on another significance. There is an anticipation that we should feel before coming to worship. There is a silence that we are coming to fill. This silence ought to be filled by all mankind But here we are, the chosen people of God, coming in the will of our Lord to end the silence. Considering this silence cultivates a sense of anticipation. We need to be intentionally cultivating a sense of anticipation before we gather for worship. Because let's be honest, how easy is it to come unthinkingly to church? I do it. We need to think to ourselves, what are we doing here? We need to prepare our minds with appropriate thoughts, considering that unresolved silence will help us. We need to go to church to fill it with something fitting. Our corporate silence-breaking worship on the Lord's Day has a unique significance. It is not like singing in the shower. That's great but the church breaks the silence in a special, elevated way. So let's prepare our hearts and minds individually and as households before we come to worship God. The next section highlights the reason why we are here today, worshiping God in his courts. All mankind ought to worship God in truth, but it is only the Christian church that is doing this. Why? This is another really important thing for us to consider before coming to church. It is due to God's gracious choice. Verse 4 says, "Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts." David understood that he was a sinner like any other man, but he was a blessed man. He confessed in the preceding verses that his life was mixed up with sin. It says, Iniquity prevail, uh, Iniquities prevail against me. As for my, our transgressions, they will, they wilt, thou wilt forgive them. David came to God's house to confess his sins and receive forgiveness because God chose him and caused him to approach him correctly. God's choice of David had an effect. He caused David to come by giving him a heart that was inclined to come. We too come to worship God because he changed our hearts through the power of the resurrection, through the Holy Spirit, through regeneration, so that we now love to fill that silence with praise. And what else do we gain from God's choice of us? Verse 4. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. Thy holy temple. He causes us to come to church to satisfy us with the goodness of his house. If you are not being blessed by Redwood Reformation Church, we're doing something wrong. Our gathering should be characterized by being, being a place of satisfying goodness. Come to church anticipating the experience of God's house. Come hungry. And be fed. Find nourishment in the ministry of God's words as we sing them together and hear them being preached together. Psalm 5 takes us down a different turn. It says, By terrible things thou wilt answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. Terrible things come about when God answers our prayers. What are these terrible things? Were we even asking God to do terrible things? For most Christians, that sounds like a strange way for God to answer our prayers. I think we here at Reedwood understand more than most about the terrible things God does when He answers our prayers. David assumes here that mingled in the praises of God are requests for the wicked to perish from the earth. And we've talked about that a lot. Singing God's songbook, we express thanksgiving and dissatisfaction with the current world order. Because we love mankind, we love the peace of righteousness and hate the cruelty of wickedness. For the glory of God and the good of man, we ask for terrible things to happen when we sing the Psalms. For example, we sing the words of Psalm 69 against the wicked. They say, Let their table before them become a snare, And when they are in peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them and let the fierceness of thine anger overtake them. So how does it look when God answers these requests? In this case, the destruction of a city. Psalm 69 In an ultimate sense, is a prayer being prayed against those who killed Jesus the Messiah. Just before these verses that I just read, it says, quote, They gave me also gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is referring to what the Roman soldiers did to Jesus on the cross, and they did this because because the Jewish leaders demanded his life in a show trial, There was injustice there. The terrible things that came upon them as a response to the prayer in Psalm 69 were recorded for us in Josephus' account of the fall of Jerusalem. Piles of bodies, starvation, blood running through the streets. Though we here at Redwood ask for terrible things, I don't know if you or I really understand what it is that we're asking for. Maybe we do. Our kids watched Prince of Egypt yesterday. And considering this passage, Mel and I thought, would Israel have known that God would answer their calls for deliverance with the deaths of thousands of Egyptian babies? Would they have thought that the, the Nile would have had to turn turned to blood for their deliverance? I don't think so. So, in a similar manner, are we prepared for our city to be leveled by an earthquake if that is what God requires to disciple the city? God knows what it will take. Let this passage be a warning to us. By terrible things, God will answer us in righteousness. This next lesson I want to give is not strictly taught in the psalm, but I think I should probably say it to balance out what I've been saying. It is also essential for us to pray for individuals as Jesus did on the cross and as Stephen did as he was being stoned. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Request for forgiveness and request for judgment effectively achieve the same thing when they are answered they uproot the wicked from the land. If this world is to be filled with pe- the peace of Christ's rule, and it will be, Then both of these prayers need to be offered up by the church. He will choose how to answer them in righteousness. Verse 5 says, Thou that art the confidence of all the earth, all the ends of the earth, and of them that are afar off upon the sea. So David acknowledges here that God acts in the same way all over the globe. He always acts in accordance with his character. And that is our confidence here in New Zealand, afar off upon the sea. From verse 6 to the end of the psalm, David lists a bunch of the works of God that inspire our confidence in him. I've referenced a few of these already, but let me run through them in my own words going through the psalm. He establishes the mountains. He stills the sea and the tumult of the nations. He causes frightening, powerful natural disasters over all the earth. He causes us to rejoice with gladness as we go about our work during the day. He sends rain to enrich the earth. He fills the rivers. He gives us grain. He waters the fields that we plow with gentle rain. He blesses us all year round with the choicest things that the earth can produce. He girds the hills with joy. The pastures are clothed with delicious meats, and the valleys are covered over with the beginnings of bread. The last verse says, they, that is the things in nature, shout for joy, they also sing. They are glad to be part of God's creation, so they sing. One lesson, one lesson that can be drawn from this section of the psalm is that our faith in God should not rest in Scripture alone, but also in the word that God preaches through the things He has made. Scripture and nature are both revelations of God Himself. If God cares so much for these things in nature, will He not care for you? This is logical. It is the exact logic that Jesus uses when He commands us to not be anxious. You will not pick up on Lessons like these, unless you are looking for the many sermons preached throughout nature. Look at the birds. God provides for them. And though they neither sow nor reap, God provides for them. If this logic doesn't work in your mind, you've become dull in your thinking. It follows that the people of God should have confidence in God because of the things that we observe in nature. That's what the psalm says. So stop, look, and read nature. Study it. Learn from it. Learn from the ant. Learn from the rain this week. Ask yourself what it means. Why did God make it so? And then worship alongside these things. Creation is constantly breaking the silence with its songs of praise. And so should we. So let's sing this psalm now. Um, we're going to do a cappella again to the tune of um, On Christ the Solid Rock.
1: The foreign and peoples fear the wonders you have made appear. From dawn to when the sun goes down, you make the songs of joy resound. You visit earth, its waters flow, crazy on it you bestow, great riches on it you bestow. God's streams have overflowed with rain, earth is prepared for sprouting grain. You have crowned, the pastures prosper and abound. The hills are clothed with joyfulness, the meadowlands with flocks of dress. The